You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you. Second um, Peter chapter 1 is where you need to turn. And you just need to get your Bible handy and ready. We're going to be in several different places today. It's going to take us a little while to get there this morning. And so that's where we're going to end. And so if you have just kind of stumbled in on us, um, we're in the middle of a set of sermons on how God uses the gospel to work change in our life. This is the, the kind of theme we're trying to work out. Um, we're trying to survey the Bible to, to try to show how, how this process works. And um, one of the reasons that we're doing this, we, we listed a couple of them a few weeks ago. One is because most people have a tangible awareness that they need to, like, they, they want to change. Like, this is the reason self-help exists at Barnes & Noble. Because there's something inside of people that say, I, I would like, I, I probably... I, I want to change, you know, I, I want, I want that. But even bigger than a want for it, we have a need for it, right? I mean, if, if we just paraded the problems that exist in this room before us today, I think most of us would be absolutely amazed by them. The problems that are in you, how broken I am, how broken you are, like the problems that we, we all just do our life with, right? That we would be amazed at the depth of the need for change in this room. That, that we are people desperately in need of it. And, and here's one of the, the primary reasons why we're wanting to do this series is because most people want to change, they need change, but here's the problem. Change is, is really misunderstood in our culture. Change is a confusing thing to, to people. I love what Paul Tripp um, says about this. He says, nothing is more obvious than the need for change. We, could, I, we would all agree with that. I could just start listing things out here and we would all say, yeah, that's... I probably struggle with that. That's, that's an issue. So nothing's more obvious than the need for change, but look what he goes on to say. Nothing is less obvious than what needs to change and how that change happens. See, and this is the issue we're trying to get at. The change, culturally, change is a, is a misunderstood thing. People don't know what that looks like, what needs to change, and how change happens. That's the reason self-help is a $10 billion a year industry in the U.S., because we're grasping at straws, trying to figure out what's the next method, what's the next system that I can have that, that will help me change. And so here's what we're trying to say in all this, is that change only happens through Jesus. See, and here, here's the problem. It's not just that the culture is confused with it, but churches are confused with it. This is why so much preaching sounds like good self-help. Give, give us these methods and this system. And listen, I have no problems with, with steps and methods and all of that. I have no problem with those things. But they are bad by themselves. You see that? They're not bad in themselves. They're just bad by themselves. If all you give people is a system of rules to follow, you are sabotaging change. Because you are avoiding the one Savior that can actually change them, Jesus. So what we're trying to say here is that we've got to understand how Jesus gets inside of our heart, uproots these things to produce change in, in how we like, physically live out in the world. Okay, th- this is where we're going with all this. Okay, now here's, here's where we started uh, two weeks ago. We, we tried to start with week one, and, and this was the goal, was to diagnose the problem. And so here's what we're essentially trying to say in week one, that your problem is your heart. That's the issue. Okay, now we, we introduced a fictitious man in week one. Here was the fictitious man. I don't know if you remember this guy that we introduced a couple of weeks ago. He is the guy that met you after the service. And uh, he, here's what he says to you. He's like, wow, I am eaten to the core with, with bitterness and anger. Like before I left today, I headbutted the TV. You remember that guy? 
I punched a couple of holes in the wall. Like I just kicked down two doors and had to watch like three fights in UFC just to kind of calm down. Like, are you serious? And so he, he looks at you and he says, I, what's the deal with me? And so and we talked about how in that moment, you're going to give either one of three sort of helps. You're going to give no help, you're going to give bad help, or you're going to give gospel-centered help. Those are your three options. In that moment, when he comes to you, this is what you're going to do. And if you want to give gospel-centered help, good help in that moment, it is absolutely necessary for you to have a correct diagnosis of the problem. A correct diagnosis is the only way, an accurate diagnosis is the only way you can give an appropriate solution, an appropriate cure. Until you get the heart of the problem right, you have no chance of getting the solution to the problem right. And so what we said, we were in Mark 7 that week, and we just said the problem is the heart. The, 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 the heart is that internal source inside of you from which all of your external behaviors flow. This, this is the heart. And if we don't address the heart as the heart of the problem, we're always going to shortchange lasting and lingering change in a person's life. If all we shoot for is behavior modification, that will work for a few days, right? But it's not going to be lasting change. We have to get to the heart of the issue. The reason that we sin is because in our heart, we are trusting and we are treasuring things above God. This is why we sin. No one sticks a gun to your head and says, look at pornography. We do that because we are trusting and treasuring in something other than Jesus. Sin is what happens when our heart is not satisfied in all that God is for us through Jesus. This, this is sin for us. So see, the, the problem is the heart. The reason you do what you do is not your circumstances. Your circumstances do not cause sin in your life. They're just the occasion for it. They're just the thing that's showing you your heart. Right? And listen, your primary problem isn't even your behavior. Your primary problem is this internal thing, the, the source, the heart. Inside of you, all of your external actions flow from it. So the diagnosis of the problem is the heart. Now here's the step we want to take today. If that's the diagnosis, what we're trying to say today is the gospel is the cure. If sin is our disease, the gospel is our remedy. The means that God uses to change you is the gospel. The motive by which God gives you for change is the gospel. Okay, this is, this is where we're going to. This is what I want to try to show you today. That the gospel is the means and the motivator for change for you. And if you try to get any other motivator, any other means out there to try to change, you, you put these five steps out there and you try to follow them with everything in you. Get your New Year's resolution set up for them, the whole thing. You try to do all that and you're not going to have lasting and lingering change in your life. It's the gospel is the means, it's the motivator. Okay, so with that said, here's what I want to do. I, I'm, I want to try to organize what I try to tell you today around three questions. The first question is this one. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Um, when you think about the gospel, um, just throughout the New Testament, um, the, the New Testament opens with it. Like Mark 1 is going to say, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how Mark opens, 1-1 one, one in Mark. You keep going, though, and you're going to see it throughout the, the, the whole New Testament. It is everywhere. And if you're going to look at the Old Testament, it's going to be concealed everywhere, point forward to it everywhere. But you go to, to Romans and you're going to see Paul call it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Later on in Corinthians, he's going to say it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved currently today, being saved, for those of us, it's the power of God. 
Right? This is what Paul's going to say about it. He's going to say in Ephesians chapter 3 that it is the unsearchable riches of Christ. And do you view the gospel that way? As the unsearchable riches of Christ? In 1 Peter 1, Peter is going to say that the gospel is what the angels love to and long to look into. This is the gospel. Okay, now, now I want you to think about this. The reason why change is so confused and misunderstood in our culture is because the gospel is misunderstood in our, in our culture. The reason change is often misunderstood in our churches is because the gospel is misunderstood in our churches. So until we get the gospel right, we don't have change right. So, so we've got to, we've got to see the heart of the problem, what the diagnosis is, the heart, but we've also got to see the cure, the gospel, what it is, the solution to our heart problems. We've got to see both of those two things. So let me kind of break it down in a couple of different ways in describing what the gospel is. First of all, um, what does the gospel mean? The gospel means good news. That's what the word literally means. It's good news. And it wasn't unique just to Christians in the first century. They weren't the only people who used the word gospel. It was used throughout the, the kind of that New Testament world. And oftentimes it would be referenced um, with, think about a general who has just won a victory and he has sent news back to his country that he has won. That's how the gospel, he, he just sent the gospel back. He sent good news back. That's how the gospel was used. It was good news, oftentimes in relationship to a military victory. The person that was carrying that news, he was called an evangelist. So you see this? This is how the, this is how the words were used in, in the current culture. The evangelist was the bearer of good news. So this is what you are as an evangelist, as a missionary. You are bearers of good news. This is what, it, this is what you are. Okay, so gospel, good news. Think, think about it this way. You are in first century world and you just send the best men out of your city to go fight your battle for you. That they are going to, to war for your security, for your freedom. So you just sit them out and you know this, if they lose, then all is lost. If you're a woman in that city and they lose, you're sold into slavery. I mean, the, the stakes are high here, right? So you send your best men out to go fight that battle and the city is eagerly awaiting gospel. The good news. They're eagerly awaiting that. And now picture what happens when they see that the evangelist running toward the city. He makes his way into the middle of the town and he stands up where everyone can hear and he announces good news. The battle has been won. The war is over. Victory is sure. Your freedom is insured. Good news, right? I mean, this is a great announcement. Now think about this. That announcement does not invite the people of that city to now go out and fight the battle. That announcement calls them to begin living in light of what they just heard. See, this is what the gospel does. It's an announcement that, that calls us to live in light of what that announcement just, just told us. That we don't have to live in fear any longer. We don't have to live in, in like the fear of slavery. The victory has been won. Freedom is sure. Okay, this is good news. Okay, now, so specifically trying to define the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, what is that? It is the good news that Jesus left heaven to fight our battle. That he climbed up on a cross to fight your war. That on that cross, Jesus stacked your sin on him. And because of that cross, he stacked his perfect righteousness, the perfection of Christ on you. That the gospel is the good news that Christ has won the battle. Through his life, his death, and his resurrection, victory is sure. 
Freedom is had. This is the announcement of the good news. And listen, that does not call you now to go and do something first. It calls you to live in light of that. It calls you to to repent, place your faith and trust in Jesus and to live in light of that announcement. Now, about a year ago, we did a series on the gospel with Romans kind of one through three, and we defined the gospel in that series like this. Let me just give you a straightforward definition. The gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all those who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. The gospel is the good news that God, a holy God, has made a a way to deal with your sin. And his way to deal with that sin is to send his son, strap him onto a cross, slaughter him in your place, absorbing his full wrath for you so that now you get nothing but his affection. The gospel is the good news that Jesus got your penalty and you get his perfection. The gospel is an announcement. It's not advice on how you reach up to God. It's good news that God has reached down to you. Are we tracking here? This is what the gospel is. Let me say one more thing about it. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. This is what you see in like Romans 1.16. The power of God for salvation. 1 Corinthians 3.18, it's the power by which we are being saved. I want you to listen to this quote from a guy named Milton Vincent. Um, He said this about the power of the gospel. Outside of heaven, the power of God in its highest density, in its highest density, is found inside the gospel. This must be so, for the Bible twice describes the gospel as the power of God. Such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful. So it's not just powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity which God's power resides and does its greatest work. Indeed, indeed, God's power is seen. Now listen to this. Look at this imagery. God's power is seen in erupting volcanoes. Agreed. It is. Amazing thing. It is seen in the unimaginably hot boil of our massive sun. Agreed. It's seen there. And it's seen in the lightning speed of a recently discovered star seen streaking through the heavens at 1.5 million miles per hour. It's seen there, no question. Look what he goes on to say. Yet in scripture, such wonders are never labeled the power of God. You see what he's saying here? He goes on. How powerful then must the gospel be that it would merit such a title? So we would all say all those things are incredible. They are a display of the power of God. But in the scriptures, the thing that is called the power of God is the gospel. So if those things are powerful, think about how much more powerful the gospel is. Are are we tracking here? Are we good here? This is the gospel for us. Okay, now here's the second question. First question, what is the gospel? Second question goes like this. Who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Now, I hope if you've been tracking with us for a while here, you've been in with us for for months, year, whatever, that this is becoming a growing reality for you. So let me answer this question in two parts. Part number one, the gospel is for non-Christians. No question. 
The gospel is for non-Christians. It is the only door through which you can be saved. There is only one way to God. It is through a, a perfect Jesus who lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect one, who died an undeserving death in place of your deserving death. That is the only way to God. It's through that gospel, through, through trusting and treasuring that. This is what John 14, 6 says when it says he's the only way. There's no other way. Like you can only get to the Father through him. This is what Acts 4 says um, when it says that, that there's no other name under heaven among men by which they can be saved. There is only one way, and that one way is through the gospel. So if you're asking, who is the gospel for? There is no question the gospel is for unbelievers. It is how the penalty of your sin is canceled. It is how God declares you righteous. The penalty of your sin on Jesus, his perfection on you. That only comes through belief in the gospel. That's what for a non-Christian moves you from being condemned to no condemnation. From death to life. And I, I want to stop just for a second and say this. If you are not a Christian in the room, I, I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you'll keep coming and just investigating these things, hearing these things, sitting kind of here and just listening to all this. But I, I just want to take a second to implore you. If you have not been reconciled to God, if you have not trusted and treasured Jesus, that's a one-time de de decisive moment in your life. If you have not done that, that you would that you would walk in the life that he gives through the gospel, that you would be saved, that you would experience this power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So I, I just want to implore you to do that. Be reconciled. God stands ready to save today. You don't have to wait like tomorrow. You don't have to wait to like say a specific little prayer. It is God, I want you and need you. I'm trust, treasure, God save me. I just want to implore you on that. So the gospel is for non-Christians. Okay, now, this is where the gap starts to widen for us. The gospel is not just for non-Christians. The gospel is also for Christians. Now, I hope this is becoming normal kind of vocabulary to you. The gospel is for Christians. I grew up with, um, and this is like 25 years of misconception for me. I grew up believing that the gospel was only for those who, who needed Jesus, as if I didn't need Jesus after I got saved, right? I mean, I, I grew up thinking the only way I could even talk about the gospel was in terms of heaven or hell. The only way I could talk about it was in terms of saving from the past penalty of your sin. I mean, do you want to get saved? I mean, that's the only kind of framework I had for that. This is why I don't let anybody listen to any sermon I ever did like more than five years ago. Because my theology was summed up like this. You get saved, past penalty of sin, God does it all by grace. But then it's elbow grease and hard work. Suck it up and let's do this. That's not good theology. It's terrible theology. That's what you can never, ever listen to a sermon more than five years old. Never. They're all destroyed, right? Okay, so, so here's the thing. I, I live with this misconception that when I read like a, a Romans 1, that when it says it's the power of God for salvation, that the only thing it could be talking about in salvation is past penalty of sin. The gospel is not just about the past penalty of your sin. And see, and most Christians would go one step further. Most of us in this room probably grew up with this sort of a view, that the gospel is useful to save us from the past penalty of our sin, justification, and, and the, the, the future, it's, it's powerful for the future, where it's going to one day finally and fully save us from the presence of sin. So we've got it 
Past tense, it's powerful there. We've got it future tense. It's going to be powerful one day when Jesus comes back, sets all things new. Amen, it will be, right? But here is what is a total like gaping gospel hole for most of us. The gospel is also relevant. It's also powerful in your present reality. It doesn't just save from the past penalty of sin. It now saves from the current power of sin in your life. And it will one day finally and fully save from the presence of sin. All of those things the gospel does. See, the gospel is related to your life right now. The gospel is related to insecurity in you, to how you function at work, to how you treat your wife. All of these issues, the gospel is related to those things. The gospel is for Christians. If you're a believer in here, the gospel is for you. This is why Tim Keller, he says it like this. And these words have have become well-known He goes like this. The gospel is not just the ABC of Christianity. It's not just like this first thing. The gospel is the A to Z. See what he's saying? It's the whole thing. He goes on. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom. So it's not, it is that, but it's not just that. But he goes on to say, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom, the way we grow, the way God changes, the way God transforms us, that is all gospel. The gospel is underneath all of that, sustaining all that. He goes on. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each door closed, and the power that gets you through every barrier. Welcome to the full, robust gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for Christians and non-Christians. It's not as if you become a Christian and then God kind of moves you to, to bigger and brighter things. It is the big and the bright thing. You don't move past it. You move deeper into it. Okay, this is the gospel. Okay, this is why every week, week in, week out, we preach the gospel. One is because the scriptures make us do it. The scriptures are about Jesus. They're about what he has done for us. But secondly, if you're a believer or a non-believer in the room, Christian or non-Christian, what you need to hear the most from me is what Christ has done for you. That's what you need to hear most from me. You don't need to hear most from me what to do for Christ. You need to know what Christ has done for you. Okay, this this is gospel. It's for both Christian and non-Christian. Okay, now I want to try to explain how that worked itself out with this next question. How does the gospel relate to growth, to, to God changing us, to our sanctification, right? So we're saying the gospel doesn't just save, it sanctifies. That gradual and grueling process, painful and present process where God is making us like Jesus. How does God use the gospel to do that? How does the gospel relate to growth? Okay, now let me preface all that I'm about to, to say kind of for the rest of our time by saying this. I am going to open a can of worms here that I can't close today. I don't have time to close it. So I'm not going to try to close it all for you today. That's what the next several, about the next month is going to be. Here's what I want to do for you today. I want to crack open that can and say, do you see what's inside of that? I mean, did you know that was in there? This this is what's in there. I want to make sure we show you what's inside of there, and then we'll try to pick up the pieces over the next few weeks. Cool? Okay, so 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's the issue that we're having. Verse 8. I want you to, to come to verse 8 first. I want to show you the issue. This is the problem in the people that Peter is addressing. Problem goes like this. Verse 8. For if these qualities 
are yours and are increasing. That whole list of things that he says in verse five and six, if those qualities are yours and increasing, here's what would happen. They would keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so let me just summarize the problem. He is saying the problem is those things aren't present and they're not keeping you from that. The problem is these people that he is writing to are unfruitful and they're ineffective. They're Christians, but they're just not doing a good job of living as Christians, right? I mean, th- this is his problem, that, that they're Christians, but they're just not displaying what it should be to, to live as a Christian. Like they should be progressing more than they are. They should be displaying more growth than they are. Like the, the, take the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit should be coming out in their, in their life. Love, joy, peace, patience, all these things should be flowing out of their life, but they're not. They're, they're trapped in their addictions, that their heart is consumed with other things. I mean, they are just a myriad of problems. It's they're ineffective and they're unfruitful. It's just a summary for saying they are not what they should be. They're, they're not living this thing out. And can we just stop there and admit this? That encompasses every one of us in this room. That we, in, in some areas of our life, somewhere for you, you are not living effectively and fruitfully as God's child. This is all of us. And I could give you like a laundry list of things and we could kind of go down through and start pointing them out. I don't want to do that just for sake of time. But for every one of us in here, this is going to apply to us, I guess is what I'm saying. That unfruitful, ineffective, it tenderly kind of reaches its arm around you and says, this is you. This is me. This is us. Okay, now here's what I want to ask you. How would you counsel the guy that's ineffective, he's unfruitful? What are you going to say to him? Okay, take our angry man, our fictitious angry guy, head-butted walls, watching UFC like crazy. I mean, he's doing all just to calm down, screaming a lot, nervous. Tw- I mean, he just, he is eaten up. What are you going to say to him? And, and listen, we're, I'm not asking, th- this time I'm not asking what is his problem. We, we've established that. The problem is his heart. Now the question is, what do you counsel? What are you going to say to this guy? What is he, what, what is, what's the next step for this guy? Like, what does he need from you? Okay, now, I, I'm just going to make an educated guess for a lot of us in the room of how I think the council would go. And remember, we've got three options. No help, bad help, gospel-centered help. Here's how I think the, the conversation would go. You're punching walls, man. You need to stop punching walls. I mean, I can't find like a verse that says don't punch walls, but I'm pretty sure the Bible would say don't punch walls. Right? And so we, we're going to start there. Like, here's going to be something you don't do. Then we might say something to do. We might say, here's what you need to do. You need to start reading your Bible. Start in Genesis, just start reading it. Just read your word. Th- then we might say, um, TV. We've got to take it easy on the TV. There's no headbutting the TV. It's, it's, it's dumb. Don't do it. I mean, you realize what, you look like an idiot. Don't do that. And so then we might give something else, like something to do. Um, let's make sure you get into accountability group. You need to get some good community around you, right? And listen, I'm not against any of those. I, I think all those things are good. You should. Stop stop punching the t- headbutt in the TV. That's, that is dumb. No question. Get in a good group of guys that would, would love it. All that's good. But I want you to see what Peter first and foremost wants to reestablish in someone that is unfruitful and ineffective. Now you watch yourself. Well, you would respond to that to your kid, to your wife, to your husband, how you would respond and watch how Peter, our good gospel-centered counselor responds, okay? Verse nine, they're they're unaffected, 
they're unfruitful, all that. And here's how he responds. Number nine, for whoever lacks these qualities, whoever is, is ineffective, unfruitful, whoever's got these problems, they're, they're addicted to things. They're just, they're just not progressing like they should. If you don't have these qualities, here's the reason. You're so nearsighted that he is blind. So the problem is that we're blind to something. What we need is for our eyes to be open to something else. And this is what he's wanting to open their eyes to. Here's the problem. Here's what they need to hear. Here's what his counsel is for them. You're blind. You've forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, is that how you would have counseled that? There's not like a to-do list there. There's not like a, let's stop doing this and start doing that. Here's what Peter, first and foremost, is trying to do. He is trying to recalibrate these unfruitful, ineffective Christians to who they are and what they have in the gospel. This is what he's trying to do. He is trying to redefine for them, to make sure they're recalibrated to all that God has done for them. See, his, his little thing following their unfruitfulness is not a list of things to do. It's to remind them of all Jesus has done. That is what they need to hear more than anything else because they've forgotten it. In this moment, when you're unfruitful, ineffective, here's why you're unfruitful and ineffective. You have forgotten what God has done for you. You have forgotten of the beauty of all that you are, all that you have in Jesus. You've forgotten. This is what Peter is saying here. Now, okay, are you seeing this? Okay, now, now here's what I want to do. I want to draw out four implications of what this means for us. Just draw out four things from that. Here's the first one. According to, to Peter, every problem, every problem is a gospel problem. Now, if you grew up in church, you're going to think, that's kind of a trite church saying. And here's what I'm telling you. That is not a trite church saying. That is true. Every problem you face is a gospel problem. Every one of them. See, this is what Peter's saying. Here is your problem. You have forgotten the gospel. See, when we sin, it's because our heart really does think that we're going to find satisfaction and joy in fleeting pleasures above Jesus. That's why we sin. See, we've forgotten who we are and what we have in Jesus. So Peter's saying the problem is always a gospel problem. The issue is always a gospel issue. This is always the issue when we see weird things coming out of our mouth into our life, all of that. It's always a gospel problem. Flip back to Galatians chapter two. I want to show you one more um, instance of this. Galatians chapter two. It'll be up on the screen for you as well. I encourage you to look at it in your, in your own Bible there. Galatians two. And I want to show you that, that Paul agrees with this. Like this is Paul's way of going about this too. In Galatians two, here's the context. Peter, like Paul's about to get into a tussle with Peter. Kind of weird to watch apostles get into a fight. Okay, so, so they're about to get into a tussle and here's what it's over. Peter, th there's some things reemerging from his old sinful life that, that's, that's kind of reemerging in Peter. One is it, that's reemerging is racism. There was this bitter kind of hatred between Jew and Gentile and that's starting to reemerge in him. And the second thing is he, he's just kind of being a coward. Like he, he's got this fear of man thing going and here's what fear of man is leading him to do. When he's with this group of people, he's going to act this way. But when he's with this group of people, he's going to act a different way. That's fear of man. Gospel issues, right? So th this is what's happening here. Now I want you to see what Paul, how Paul goes about kind of addressing this. Verse 11 in Galatians 2. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from Jesus, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay, that's the problem. Now watch his solution, verse 14. I want you to see that the context, the framework that he's thinking in here. But when I saw their conduct, conduct is the surface behavior. Okay, when I saw their conduct, what they're doing, here, here's what I knew. Here's what I knew about Peter. Here's how he addressed it. Peter, th- this is the problem. He was not in step with the, the truth of the gospel. Do you see that? This is his way of addressing racism and this, this fear of man issue in Peter. He, Paul is saying the problem is always a gospel problem. That in some way, shape, or form, you are failing to believe something that you have in Jesus. You're, you're not believing something that God has given you in Christ. There's a piece and a part of the gospel we're not believing, and that leads to every sin that we commit. The problem is always a gospel problem. Okay, implication number two. It goes like this. The gospel is the only means of lasting motivation. Implication two. The gospel is the only means of lasting motivation. Peter knows this. This is why he counsels him this way in verse nine. Okay, now I want to, I want to ask you the question. How do you try to motivate people around you? Sons, daughters, wives, husband. How do you try to motivate those people around you? What do you try to do? And, and I'm going to make an educated guess for you. I think this is how most people try to motivate others around them. Three ways. Guilt, fear, and pride. So here's what this sounds like. Let's just say, we'll put it in the context of a parent to kids. Here's fear. You do not want to know what's going to happen if you do that again, right? Think paddle and big paddle. This is how we motivate, right? Okay, second thing is we'll, we'll take guilt. Guilt sounds like this from a dad. I am so disappointed that you did that. So disappointed in you. This is guilt. I hope that's a little bit convicting for some of us, right? Third, third way we like to motivate, pride. We appeal to people's pride. Like It sounds like this. Don't you know you're better than that? See what that's appealing to? Pride. You don't want to turn out like those people, do you? You don't want to be one of that group. I mean, you don't want that life over there. You're better than that. See, it appeals to their pride. See, these are the top three ways that people like to motivate. Guilt, fear, and pride. And listen, here's what I'm trying to say. That is not a lasting motivation. That lasts as long as the guilt lasts. As long as you've got a big enough paddle to scare them, that's how long it lasts, right? It's not a lasting motivation. Any motivation that is not grounded in the gospel will not move you to a lifetime of obedience. If the motivation is not grounded in the gospel, it is not sustainable. You can't do it. Okay, now let me clarify by giving you one um, story here real quick. Friday morning, I was tired, right? My wife had to give up early. She was going to a doctor's appointment and she had to get the kids out, up, fed, out of the house early. I had a long day Thursday, going to have a long day Friday. I did not want to get out of bed. So at some point in the middle of all that, she hollers at me and says, Rodney, will you help get the kids ready? Get up, get, get the kids ready, help. That was like right before I drifted right back into unconsciousness, right? And so I'm down. I wake up 
and she's just got the last kid in the car and she's just getting in the door, right? I mean, I, I go to the, uh, to the window and she won't roll it down yet. I, I go to the window and I'm like, I love you though. You know, I mean, I'm doing that whole thing and, um, and three minutes later, my, my sweet spirited little wife calls me and she says, Rodney, I wanted to slap you in the face. <laughs> Can you believe that? She wanted to slap me in the face. Now, I'm not saying I didn't deserve it. I'm not saying that. But, but here's, what I, here's what I want you to see. In the moment of I'm going to slap them in the face, in that moment, we're not picky on motivations, right? We're not picky in that moment. We'll take any motivation that works in that moment. We'll take any motivation that keeps us from slapping someone in the face, keeps us from killing somebody, keeps us from looking at the, the pornography that pops onto our screen. In the moment of crisis, in the moment of, I want to slap you, in that moment, any motivation is good. If you have to start thinking about, man, if I slap him, they're going to throw me in jail. That's like domestic abuse. My neighbor's out there. He's going to see that. If pornography is the issue and your wife's in the room and you're thinking, man, I want to look at that, but my wife's right there. This is going to go really bad if I... We'll take any motivation in the moment. Any motivation. Jail. The death penalty. Whatever. But here's what I want you to see. Lasting motivation will only come when it is grounded in the gospel. That's the only way. You cannot slap him for a day by sheer willpower. A little bit of guilt, fear, all that. But you cannot not slap him forever unless the gospel is motivating that. Okay, this is what I'm trying to get you to see here, that the gospel is the motivator. So watch how this plays out in, in, in 2 Peter. Watch what he does. Look at verse 8. That's the problem. Verse 9, he starts to unpack the solution. The solution is you need to know what you have and what you are in the gospel. See, before I can tell you what to do, I've got to tell you what has been done for you. See, this is step one. What has been done for you? Okay, now go to the top of the passage. I want you to see how this works. See how he starts out the passage in verse 3 and 4? He is telling the people that he's writing to, this is all that you have and all that you are in the gospel. You have been given in Christ everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need not to slap him, you've got. Everything you need to respond appropriately, you've got. Everything you need to be fruitful and faithful, you have got it. Verse 4, he, he talks about how you've got these precious promises that Jesus gives us in the gospel. You've got everything you need. Now, here's what Peter does. In light of all of that grounding and that motivation, now you can read verse 5 and 6. Now you can read, do these things. But see, it's not do these things first. It's this is what is done. Now, out of that, you can do. Okay, now this is the same thing that Ephesians does for us. In Ephesians, we studied this last year. In Ephesians, the first three chapters of the book only give one command, only one thing that it says to do. You know what the one thing is? To remember the gospel. Everything in the first three chapters of Ephesians is trying to tell you, this is what you have and this is what you are because of Jesus. That's three chapters. Then you get to chapter four and it starts this list of imperatives. 
do this, don't do that. See, it's not that those do this and don't do that are bad. It's just if you lose the grounding of the gospel, if you lose chapters one through three of Ephesians and just start reading chapter four, you will never be able to do them. You'll never do them long term. You'll muster up some willpower for a while, but it will never be a lasting motivation for you. So you've got to have the grounding in the gospel, the motivational pull of the gospel that, that gives us a lifetime of obedience. Okay, let me give you one more illustration of this. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It'll be on the screen for you too if you want to just look at it up there. 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is trying to motivate the Corinthians to give. Now, how would you motivate to give? See, I could motivate this way. Um, I could use some guilt. Don't you know that good Christians give? What's wrong with you, right? I could go that route. I could use some fear. You don't give, think big knives and big guns. That's what's happening, right? We could use a little bit of fear. We, we could use some pride. We, we could say, you're better Christians than that. Don't be like, I mean, come on. So we could use a little, a little bit of pride, appeal, appeal to that. But I want you to see how Paul motivates them to give. Watch this. 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the gospel. That's what he's saying. You know what Christ has done for you. Then he spells it out for them. That though he, Christ, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that by his poverty, you might become rich. See, this is his motive. It's not guilt, fear, or, or pride. It's Look what you have and look at what you are in the gospel. That Jesus, he was rich and he made himself poor so that you in your poverty, you in you, in your I have nothing, and you in that state could become rich. See, until we get that, we'll never give generously for the long term. See, we could go the guilt fear route and if we're just articulate enough with words, I might could get you to write one big check. But until the gospel gets underneath our greed, our idolatry, until the gospel gets to our heart, we'll never write 50 of them. We'll never do that. See, until we start to see all that we have and all that we are in Christ, that Jesus, Second uh, Peter 1, that Jesus has really given us everything we need for life and godliness, that we really have everything we need. We really functionally have everything today that we need. Until we start to see that, you know, we'll always think that we need a bigger house. We need another TV. Ten of them isn't enough. We need a, a, the next new gadget. We, we need another improvement in a car. See, we'll still keep grasping at these straws because we haven't bought into Christ is enough for me. See, when we start to see that, that we were poor and he has made us rich, when we start to see that he has given us everything we need, it, it frees our grip on greed and makes us generous people. And you'll never be generous long-term until you get that. So you see all that you have and all that you are in Christ. You see what's happening here? It is the only lasting and sustainable motivator that you have. Everything else will fall away. Everything else will fail you and you'll forget about it. The gospel is the one sustaining motivator. Okay, implication three. We're, we're wrapping it up here, almost done. Implication three goes like this. Your growth is linked to your understanding of the gospel. Now, I can't even describe how massively important the next few minutes are. 
that you, that you grab a hold of this, that your growth is linked to your understanding of the gospel. Okay, now I think it's implied in 2 Peter 1, but it's not explicit there. So I want to take you to a passage that makes this explicit. I just want you to look at it on the screen. You can write this down and look at it later. Colossians 1, 3 through 6. Listen to what this says. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth is the gospel. Now look what he says about this gospel in verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. And look at what it says it's doing, that it's bearing fruit and it's growing. That, that it's actually producing change in people. That, that when the gospel works into people's lives, that they're no longer ineffective and unfruitful, but now they're fruitful and effective. This is what it's saying. Okay, now look at what it goes on here. It says, and it has also done this among you. So this is what it's producing in the church in Colossae. Okay, this is what it's doing in them, doing for them. Okay, now I want you to see why and how it's doing that though. Next phrase, since the day you heard it, number one, we've got to hear it. This is the reason we sing gospel songs. The reason we talk the gospel every week, because you've got to consistently hear these things. And, and, but it's not just a hearing issue. Okay, there's another word he uses. The day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So it's a hearing issue and an understanding issue that we have got to learn what the gospel is and all that we have and all that we are in Jesus. And then specifically how that applies to every area of our life. That is hard work, by the way. Really hard work. But this is how we grow. This is how this process works itself out is by us learning the gospel. Let me say it this way. Paul's saying that there's a direct correlation between your grasp of the gospel and your growth and your change, and your transformation, that you have to hear it and understand it, that it's not enough to hear it. You've got to hear it and get it. Okay, now I want to show you a chart that for me has been very, very helpful in trying to teach people this and uh, in trying to, to kind of bring this to a point where it makes sense for people. So, okay, so take a look up here. Let me try to explain what's going on. If you picture like left to right being time, um, you, you've got on the front side of this would be your pre-Christian days. So, um, and here's what the lines are. The, the lines are essentially in your mind, like your growing awareness of God's holiness is top line. It's kind of branching off and your sinfulness. Okay. It's not how things actually are. If it was actually are like God's holiness would be like off the chart up top. Your sinfulness would be off the chart down below. This is across time. Your growing understanding of who God is and who you are. Okay, so before you became a Christian, here's, here's what was true of you. You might have not articulated it this way, but here's what was true. Is that there was no difference in your mind between who God is and who you are. You're just as good as he is. You're just as just and you're just as holy. He's just as whatever you are. There's, there's no separation yet. At the moment of conversion, that's the dot there. At the moment of conversion, here's what happens in your heart. There is an awareness. You have just grown in gospel awareness where you are seeing that, whoa, I was wrong. There is a difference in who God is and who I am. That's why you accepted Jesus. That's why you trusted and treasured him. That's why you were reconciled to God. That's why you responded with faith in him. Because you, for the first time, saw that there's a difference between he and I. 
Okay, now here's the truth for a lot of us though, or for all of us. When we become a Christian, we don't know the depth of how holy God really is, and we do not know the depth of how really sinful we are. We know a very like elementary, basic understanding of you're a sinner, he's not, he's just, he's holy. We just know enough to say, God, I need you, right? Now here is what produces growth in our life. Growth in our life is produced when we start to understand more of who God is. It's these Isaiah 6 moments where Isaiah gets a new picture of God and all of his old pictures of God are shattered. They are done away with. He has now got a completely new and thrilling picture of who God is. And on the other line, we grow in the awareness of our sin. See, we stop saying things like this as we grow in our awareness of our sinfulness. We stop saying things like, how could they have done that? I mean, how, how could they have, have done that sin? And we start to realize this. It is only the grace of God that keeps me from doing that. That is it. It is only the grace of God. That, that, that sin that they just committed, the seed of that sin is in me. I am capable of all of it. It is just grace that keeps me from it. See, we, we start to, to realize that we are the worst sinner we know because we know our sin the, the, the most, right? See, this is what it means to grow in, in just your awareness of, of your sinfulness. Okay, now I want you to see what happens as that happens. When you, when you start to grow in your understanding of who God is, understanding of who you are, look at what happens in the middle. The cross becomes bigger and bigger to you. The gospel becomes more electrifying to you. The gospel becomes more thrilling to you. See that the larger the cross becomes, the more you're seeing God is like way up there. I'm like way down here. And Jesus is incredible. Jesus is huge. The gospel is large. Okay, now now think about what happens now. The larger the gospel becomes, the more Christ-like our life becomes. See, the more we're understanding the gospel the, the more thrilling, the more, the more our hearts are captivated by God and the more obedience that produces, the more obedience that motivates. Do you see this? The gospel is the means of change. See, it's, it's by understanding who God is and who we are and how great the gospel is that we change. Maybe I could say it this way. You don't change by obsessing over your sin. You change when you start to see and obsess over a great savior. See, your, your growth and your change around sin, that's all the byproduct of you having a, a bigger view of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. You see what's happening here? This is how change works in us. This is how God uses the gospel to produce change. Okay, and last implication, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Last thing, implication four is we as a church, you as an individual, you as a dad and pastor of your home, uh, and your family, like we as a church, all of us in the room, we need a vocabulary of gospel application. We need to develop a way of speaking about the gospel that doesn't just say it saves from the past penalty of sin. It does do that. We need that vocabulary too, but we also need a vocabulary of the gospel where we are starting to learn how to speak it into the daily needs of our life. The daily crisis moments that we endure. See, this is what Peter is saying in 2 Peter um, chapter 1, verse 3. He's given you everything that you need. 
everything. You've got it. So we have to learn what that everything is and how that everything applies to insecurity, how that everything applies to um, pornography, how that everything applies to discontentment, how that everything applies to how we view work, how we view our marriage, how we view everything. In verse four, he says, you've been given these great and precious promises. We've got to learn what those promises are that come to us through the gospel and how those things meet us at our point of need. And just daily grind of life for us. How, the, how we speak those things to our heart and to the heart of other people. This is what we've got to grow in. How the gospel is spoken to our own heart and to each other's hearts in crisis moments. In moments where we really want to choose sin. In moments when the screen has a pornographic picture on it. In moments where we want to slap him. In those moments, we've got to learn how this happens. I love what Dick Kaufman says. He says the most desperate need of both unbelievers and believers is to hear and be able to appropriate the gospel into their lives. To be able to apply it to their lives. So this is where we're going over the next few weeks. We want to try to give you some handlebars so that you can start to think about how does the gospel apply to Mr. Angry Man? Head, button, wall. How would I speak the gospel into that? How does the gospel apply to that anger? That, that's where we're going. We'll end with this story. Um, Civil War days, this was pre-emancipation. Um, so slaves, still a present reality. A northerner goes down to a southern auction and he purchases a young um, woman out of slavery. I want you to listen to how this conversation goes. The man turned to the girl and told her, you're free. With amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? He responds, yeah, whatever you want. And to say whatever I want? Yeah, anything, anything you want. And to be whatever I want to be? Yeah, to be whatever. You're free. And even to go wherever I want to go, yeah, you can go wherever you want to go. She looks at him intently and replies, then I will go with you. See, when we start to realize the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come down to our slave auction and he has purchased us. He has freed us. He's bought us out of slavery. You know what it does to our heart? Where else would I want to go? I mean, wh- who else would I go? With? I want to go with you. And may God work that in us. Amen? Let's pray. I just want to let you sit on that for just a second. I want you to know that what I pray for you is that the Holy Spirit would show you who God is, who you are, and how great Jesus is for us. Pray he would do that for you. Pray that the Holy Spirit might might show you great glimpses of that. See, if if you're a person in here today and, and you're just struggling, you're struggling with all sorts of just behavioral sins, your only hope for lasting change is Jesus. This is where 1 Corinthians 3 says, we've got to behold the glory of the Lord. We have to behold the glory of the gospel, the glory of Jesus. All that Jesus is, all that he has done for us and to us, we've got to behold that. And when we behold that, when we see that, 
when we savor that, when we understand that, as we grow in that, we're changed from one degree of glory to another, it says. So I pray that for you. I pray that, that God would take us there over the next few weeks, that he would give us good handlebars on, on these great gospel promises that we have, all that we have for life and godliness, that, that he would give us, that, that we would see like ways of understanding what those things are and, and how to speak those things to one another, to our own heart. We need a lot of help though. So God, I, I pray over, over our church, over this group of people, over our men and, and husbands and fathers in the room. God, let them be awed at Jesus. Let them be awed. Pray for our ladies in the rooms. Pray for our moms and our mothers. That Let them be awed at what you have done for them in Jesus. For our teenagers, let them be awed. Let us sit under the counsel that Peter gives us. You have been washed from your sins. You have been cleansed. The penalty is paid for. The perfection is yours. The announcement is the war is over. over. Freedom is sure. God, let us live in that. Let us hope in that. Let us see that. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.